and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We're your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We are sisters and best friends who live with depression and have learned that hearing others speak openly and without shame makes it easier to believe depression is a common and treatable illness, not a personal failing. You are far from alone. Hi, Terry. Hello, Bridget. Every guest that we've interviewed for this podcast brings a gift. Their willingness to explore and share some of their deepest, darkest parts of their minds and experiences. Mm -hmm. We hear from those of you who listen to the podcast that their shared stories are not only a source of information, but also comfort and connection. And we hear back from our guests that the experience of hearing their story respectfully made public lets them own it in a different way, in a more empowered way. Today's guest is unique for many reasons. First, just the statistical way. Depending on the source, it's reported that before installation of the new safety net, between 1 and 4% of the people who've jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge survive. Our guest, Ken, is one of them. Because decades have passed since his attempt, and he is now a mental health advocate, we were able to ask him questions we wouldn't pose to someone at a different place in their recovery. We began this interview focused on the darkest of depression-induced thoughts, but the discussion shifted to what would have prevented Ken's attempt. And his answer may surprise and inspire you. The phrase, suicide is preventable, is a truth not just a slogan. Here now is Ken giving his voice to depression. So I read something last night that, if you're willing, may change the focus a bit. Um, I I assume you're comfortable telling your story, right? Yeah, I've been doing it ever since, uh, well, when I was in the hospital. I said, I can't hide what I am. I can't hide what I did. So I've been telling the story for 30-some-odd years. Yeah, absolutely. You started publicly telling your story from the hospital after your attempt? Well, not publicly, but I started talking to my family. I started okay. telling them, yeah, this is, I tried to kill myself. You know, when I got home, it was in the papers. It was, in, it was on the radio. They don't do that anymore. They don't, uh, they don't mm-hmm. advertise that somebody has jumped from the bridge. But they did at the time, and... You know, all my neighbors knew that I was suicidal, and I went, oh, I guess I'm going to have to live with this, and I, I can't hide it. I can't hide who I am. So, yeah, basically, when I got home from the hospital, um, I started talking about it very honestly. I, I, that, was, that was a huge thing is that I talked about it very honestly. So here's what I read last night. It said, I don't think suicidal people get enough credit for not acting on their suicidal thoughts. This post, it was on social media, is for all of you who have survived the urge to end your life, either coming out on the other side or still fighting to stay alive. I notice how when someone has physical illness, such as cancer, and they come out on the other side or even remission, they're able to celebrate surviving. 
I think all the survivors of being suicidal should too. Congratulations and keep on fighting. I, I, I agree completely. I, I think it's phenomenal that, that people are starting to get that instead of talking about, um, well, that person's mentally ill, let's just not talk about it. We're starting to say, hey, there is something wrong here in our perception of a mentally ill person. Somebody who wants to kill themselves, there's something wrong there. And I, I, I understand celebrating that we're surviving. I do that all the time myself. When there's a survivor of cancer, we go, oh, that's awesome. When there's somebody who didn't kill themselves, we go, oh, that's kind of scary. You thought about it? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a judgment. Absolutely. And, and we're getting better about that, though. Wonderful. Well, the thing I'd like to focus on, if you're willing, is the thoughts. Because I think that if we knew that those thoughts were a symptom of this illness... And, and we'd have to know it at a pretty early stage, because when you're in it, you know, you just believe it. But, you know, if, if other people knew, if it was like, wait, 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 I heard this podcast, read this article, was told by my doctor, those thoughts are a symptom. I would like to do sort of a dive into it and talk about how they start and where they go and, and what happened that switched it from, uh, uh, I don't know what word to use, a niggling thought to, to, a, to a directive for you. So are you willing to do that? Oh, a, a directive of that I should kill myself? Yeah. You're talking about my own literal thoughts. So, just to keep it real, I asked that intimate of a question, and then my mic cut out, and we lost our connection. Thankfully, Ken answered when I called back and was willing to continue our discussion. Wow. So, thank God you tell your story regularly, because this would be just too much for somebody <laughs> who's... <laughs> You would freak out, yes. Okay. All right. Uh, I will try again. I just, I just that know that life. that's life. That is my life this week, especially. Yeah. So I don't know exactly <laughs> what's happening, but I don't care for it. Okay. Huh. Okay. If we could, I want to talk about the thoughts. Yeah. So you, your earliest memory of those and, and what they were like and what they said, if you can just describe it. I know. I think my earliest my earliest memory of the thoughts uh, came just before my first attempt, and um, I, I felt like a failure. I just I was married, and my wife was pregnant, and I felt like I was failing my wife and my my future daughter, and so I felt like uh, I didn't have anything else that I could do. And that uh, I had to, I had to die, in order for them to be successful. I was holding them back. That was the thought that I remember. And you had not had that in more subtle ways prior. The first time it came to your mind, it was like you need to die. Yeah, it. You know, that's what I'm trying to remember. You know, I'm 62 years old, and so this was a long time ago. Okay. Um, Wow. I really believe that it it started when I had responsibilities to somebody else other than myself. I think that scared me quite a bit and to understand that once I felt like I was a failure, I was a failure to them, that they would be more successful without me. And so I think that's where the where the root of the the suicidal ideation came in. Yeah. So you survived that attempt. 
And in the time between that and your second attempt three years later, uh, what happened in terms of your treatment and what happened in terms of those thoughts? I did try and get help. I went to uh, a clinician and I I went for a while and I felt like it wasn't helping and, and this is pretty pretty standard sometimes is people feel like it's not helping so why even try and so um that didn't last very long i would say maybe six months and so between that time and the jump um i was kind of trying to handle it on my own uh, I went back to school in between, and I was success- I was successful at school, so the suicidal thoughts really weren't there. The depression wasn't really there because things were going well. Once I got out of school and got another job and felt like I was a failure at my job, I started seeing I, I, I do remember the thoughts of of every day waking up and going, "Oh my God, I can't do this anymore." I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I remember just thinking, what do I have to do to get back to bed? Oh, absolutely. Why didn't I die in my sleep? That was that was one of the one of my my biggest things is why couldn't I just die without having to do anything? Right. I, I just woke up and every day was black. I woke up and went, ugh. I got to do this again. I got to pretend that I'm a human being again. And, and it got exhausting. And then I can understand the depression and, and not wanting to get out of bed because it's so exhausting just trying to, to handle the things that you need to handle as a human being on a daily basis. So what if someone had been able to say to you, whether that someone was a therapist or a doctor or someone else who has depression, said, oh man, you know, that's not true. Um, There's a way to get out of this. There are many ways to get out of this. I take a pill. I see a therapist. I, whatever works for them. Would you have believed it? Would you have accepted that message and and recognized those thoughts and that dread of life as as a symptom versus a truth. Absolutely. I, I, I still believe to this day that if somebody had come up and said, hey, listen, there is recovery. There is something we can do for you. Let's get you some help. I, I would have accepted that. I would have I would have tried that. You know, I got up every day and I went to work. So I, I wasn't just in bed dreading the next minute, the next minute, the next minute. So mm-hmm. so I was a functional depress- de- depressive, I guess you can call it that. I was, I was functioning well. My wife had no idea that I, I was suicidal, even though I'd tried once before. So if somebody had said, we have a fix, let's try this, I would have gone with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And see, I think that's, you know, we know the signs of a stroke. And if we saw someone, you know, with the side of their face, you know, slumping and they were unable to smile and repeat a sentence and raise their arms, if we saw someone clutching at their chest and falling out of their chair, we'd guess they were having a heart attack. But since we don't know what the signs of depression are or being suicidal, we don't do anything because we don't know. But if you said, (laughs) you know, if we could say, hey, 
wait, 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 this is dangerous. This can be dangerous. I mean, being suicidal is our stage four. Absolutely. And we would never let someone who we thought had cancer just have cancer. <laughs> just, just say, you got to live with it. You know, just get better. Yeah, try a little harder. Yeah, just get better. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I I do um, a suicide prevention program called QPR, and the major part of it is if you see something, say something, and that's really important. Talk to them about it. Get them some help and let them know that recovery is possible. That's huge. Is we talk about hopelessness in, in a depressed person, and that's that's a big deal. And to give them hope that there is something out there more than just every black day. And so that mm-hmm. that's important. Tell me, and actually this question comes from a, a suicide specialist uh, in town who's a medical doctor, and I asked her what she would want to know. And she said, asked, what could have happened the day of your attempt or in the day or two leading up to it that would have changed the course of events and ended up with you not attempting? It's really interesting because I was so good at hiding it that nobody ever asked, nobody ever intervened, and the intervention would have stopped me. I, I, I really do believe that. I, I don't believe that I thought it was inevitable that I was going to die, even though I was, I was taking the actions of that. If somebody had intervened and said, hey, let's, let's get you some help, let's, let's go to the hospital, you look like you're not doing well. Your actions speak that you're depressed slash suicidal. I think I would have walked with them. You know, they take me by the hand and take me to somebody who could help. I was, I was pretty uh, malleable at the time, I guess you could say, if somebody would have taken control uh, I yeah. think they would have. That would have stopped me. Wow, that's really important to hear. Because yeah. I think you know, there there's one of the many myths is that once someone sets their mind to it, they can't be stopped. Right. And I just don't believe it. No. And from everything I've heard, including you. Um, <laughs> mm. Absolutely. I just I think that you know, suicidal people and depressed people aren't the ones fighting to survive a depressed person, you know, they, they sort of just go, okay, this is who I am. And if they're not getting help and if they're not trying to get help and trying to help themselves, they're pretty, pretty malleable, I think, and we can help them. A lot of uh, suicide survivors talk about if only somebody had said something. If only somebody had said something, and, and this this comes through in quite a few of the survivors that, that I've talked to, and you know that's that's important. So it really, you believe it? It could have been that, and I'm going to put in quotes the word "simple" because there's nothing simple about having someone notice you and care. But had someone at work on the train, I don't know how you get to work uh, at home, said, "Hey, that you, wow, that's really good to hear." Yeah, because that gives us some power. That gives us some some ability to help somebody who's hurting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I, I really do believe that. And what's what's the downside to intervention? You know, what's the downside mm-hmm. of asking? 
hey, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Are you thinking of suicide? Uh-huh. You know, here's what I've noticed about you in the last two weeks. What's the downside to that? The downside, they'd say, no, I'm just having a bad week. Uh, I'm just having a bad month. Here's what's going on. And you can still talk to them about resources, about, hey, listen, if this lasts any longer, there's no downside to that discussion. It's, it's important that we talk about this. And if you do find out that they are suicidal or very depressed, then you can help them get the help they need. That's why we're talking about this. Wow, I'm struck by how many times Ken used the word malleable. You know, I keep thinking that's like easily influenced, right? You know, you're impressionable and that it doesn't take much. I also want to invoke a lesson from last episode with Renee that Ken said he saw a clinician for six months and it didn't help, so he stopped. But Renee reminded us that it's not only if, if you don't find your match right away, if it's not helping, find a different therapist, find a different therapy, try group, exactly. try, you know, there are so many different things out there. And to not give up on it because it doesn't just go away. Um, and and the more skills we have, the more tools we have in what we keep calling our toolbox, the more able we will be to fend off and or survive the next time. And to not have that mismatch or not fit, you know, be the end, right? Exactly. It's almost like dating, you know, almost assume <laughs> it might not be the first one. Exactly. But, um, you know, keep trying because it's personalities. And I mean, that would be true of a hairdresser or a dentist. It's certainly true of a therapist. Absolutely. Yep. Keep trying. Keep trying. Next week, we will continue our discussion with Ken, uh, including... Uh, the, the reason I reached out to him was because I had heard him say that the instant he left the bridge, like Kevin Hines, who we often hear about, and he has his movie Ripples, The Ripple Effect out there, that the instant he left the bridge, he had immediate and deep regret that he knew he had made a mistake. He knew he could not rescind that mistake. You know, he was falling fast and far. And... um that he, the things that made him feel he had no choice didn't feel that way anymore. And I just think that's something that people need to hear. And we, we hear it over and over. They want the pain to stop. They want their life to feel different. They want you know their brain to, to be working in a healthy, supportive, loving way again, but they don't want to be dead. Over and over again, we hear that, Terry. Mm-hmm. It's such an important message. Yes, it is. And we will hear um, a very credible source give us that message yet again because I just think we need to hear it over and over next week. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Ken, for your time. Thank you, Bridget, for yours. And uh, we will talk more about this next week, including the thoughts he had as he was on his way toward the bay. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.